All righty. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Black and Corporate Coffee Chats podcast. We have an amazing guest today, and I'm really excited to welcome him in. Um, I do want to go over his bio really quickly before we get into the episode. So I'll read his credentials. There are many. Uh, so today we have the pleasure of speaking with Damian Journey, the current Global Chief Growth Officer of 72 and Sunny, a global full-service marketing, advertising, and design company responsible for many of the commercials, billboard, and online placements of the brands that we love and use each day. In addition to this role, Damian is also on the board of directors for Juma Ventures with a mission to break the cycle of poverty for youth in America and Always Giving Back, AGB Foundation, a nonprofit with the focus of closing the racial gap, racial wealth gap. Damian holds a bachelor's of science degree in industrial engineering from the University of Michigan and also a master's in business administration from Harvard University. He also has held roles of chief development officer and chief revenue officer at National Action Council for Minorities in Engineering, some may know it as NACME, and Gavin DeBecker and Associates, respectively. But his career began in healthcare at Eli Lilly. So I really can't wait to dive into this journey, pun intended, uh-huh. um, today. So let's welcome him warmly to the podcast. Uh, well, thank you, Taylor. I appreciate the love and uh, the bio, um, you know, describes a bit of me, but not all of me. So thank you for that. For sure. Yeah, we're going to get into it. So I do want to start um, in Black and corporate fashion with an icebreaker. Okay. Set the tone. So I have five quick questions for you. Just answer off the cuff, you know, what you like. And I tried to incorporate a few kind of, I guess, design-ish, marketing-ish, um, I'll just say media and entertainment to media type questions. So, <laughs> you know, see what you like. All right, All right. let's do it. Okay. So movies or music? Mm, music. Okay. Argyle or Stripes? Ooh, Stripes. Okay. When you go to lunch, salad or french fries? Oh, that's terribly tough. Uh, it depends on how I'm feeling. It's every other day, it's the fries. Okay. Large team or small team? What's the context? Is that a fair question? Um, Just, I guess, yeah, just in general, how you like to work, your working style, large team or small team? Small team. Okay. In bright colors or earth tones? Bright colors. Okay, nice. You did well. I'm so curious to know, like, what's the full data set on the answers you've received from others? Like, I'd love to know, you know, what quartile I fall in. Where, uh, what do most people lean on these questions? They seem pretty cool. Yeah, I should definitely probably ask the same ones, but I switch it up. I try and okay. switch it up each episode. Yeah. All right. All right. I dig it. I dig it. You well did done. good. Yes. Well, cool. I'm glad we're here and we're chatting and I'm excited to start um, with just like talking about how you got to where you are. So, of course, there's an origin story. And I do want to get to your background in your upbringing and what were the influences and sights and sounds and the environment in which you were brought up. Okay, well, let's start there then. Um, I'm from Flint, Michigan, born and raised. Uh, This is a town that is both famous and infamous for lots of things, probably most recently um, a water crisis that uh, the government bestowed upon the people of that fair town. Uh, But when I grew up there, we had great water. Uh, It was a really cool environment. Most of, um, you know, it was a General Motors town. So most of the folks were middle-class, hardworking, 
just trying to raise their family and get to the next rung, educate their kids so they can move on. Uh, and that was my, my environment as well. My dad worked at General Motors for 34 years. My mother was uh, in healthcare and education with small children. And, um, and so that was a launching pad for like a really good foundational life. Um, and then on to college and things after that. Um, so that's kind of where it all began for me. Got a younger brother that teaches you some life skills, having a sibling or two. Uh, my grandparents were my life. That definitely gives you perspective on history that I wouldn't have had without them. Um, you know, church home, the whole nine. So I would like to believe I had a pretty typical um, Black American upbringing, but you know, what is what is typical? We're not a monolith. So I guess the, the typical phrase is a, um, is a is a misnomer in and of itself. But that's me, at least on the, the front end. Yeah, okay. So how did you even, I guess, get to construct this path? Because you majored in industrial engineering, which yeah. I majored in industrial engineering as well. And I know for yeah. me, you know, I started in like science camps in seventh grade and I knew I really liked science. I was good at it. And it just seemed like, okay, you know, I heard you make money doing yep. STEM careers. So I was like, all right, let me do that. So how did, you know, what was your journey? Was it as simple as like somebody saying, hey, you can make money doing this and you're good at it. So, or were you like, oh, I want to be an engineer? No, it's crazy because you're right. Like if you're young, black and smart and good in math and science, people are going to slot you into being a doctor or an engineer uh, and being in a town that was making automobiles nonstop. Like the people that you saw that were making money and that were really smart in the community oftentimes were doctors, lawyers, or engineers. Uh, and so a lot of us, a lot of my contemporaries and classmates were in, I was in a gifted program um, in middle school and elementary school and high school. And those that naturally gravitated towards uh, the sciences and the maths, almost all went down the path of either engineering or medicine. And those that gravitated towards liberal arts um, and those sorts of fields, gravitated towards law and other sort of uh, fields in that category. So for me, it was early days of seventh grade science class that required us to do something different. And I chose to design hotels. So I had to interact with an architect that got me on that train. Um, National Society of Black Engineers uh, appeared as uh, we had a um, uh, Nesby Junior chapter at GMI, which was a big university in town. Um, at the time it was GMI and I was Kettering. So that will expose us to engineering. We went to some summer camps between my junior and senior year that led to a choice between architecture and engineering. And the math was simple. Someone said, you know, you can spend six years uh, to get a master's degree and be an architect and you'd make X or you can spend four years in being an engineer and you can make X plus Y. And I said, well, that math is simple. Let me go be an engineer. Uh, and so that led me down the path of uh, considering Michigan, Georgia Tech, uh, MIT, schools like that. And I ultimately chose Michigan. Um, and engineering was the path from that point forward, at least until I changed uh, to business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you weren't, you weren't nervous to, um, or, or how close was it? I know University of Michigan is a, a little distance away from Flint. So you That's were true. leaving home. Yeah. It was like a new environment and everything. Totally. Right. Yeah, Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor is about 45 minutes from Flint. So yeah. for me, it was a situation where you could be far enough from home uh, to have some separation and some uh, independence. 
but close enough that you could go home and get a meal, get some cash if you needed it, et cetera, et cetera. So you could be, you get access to things you need without having the parents in the space. So that made uh, University of Michigan Arbor a really good choice. Uh, Consider Georgia Tech and some other places, but Michigan was where my heart was and where I ultimately ended up. Now, were you first-generation college student, or did you have other people that you were able to kind of look at and see how to do things? It's a good question. Both of my parents were had gone to college before I did. Um, my grandfather graduated from University of Louisville, I want to say in the 50s or so. Uh, he was the first Black graduate of their art program. My grandmother in her 60s and 70s went back to college and studied. Um, she was a nurse, so she had professional training in, in uh, nursing, but not a college degree. So she went back and took classes in college. So from a very, very early age, and my, my other grandmother always said uh, she was a domestic worker for most of her life uh, in the South. And uh, she was taught how to read by, um, you know, the white girl that she had to work for uh, on the side. And so her philosophy was, they can take everything from you except your education. So always get an education. So between those influences, it was, uh, set in stone that I was going to take a collegiate path. The only question was which college and what particular field of study would I pursue? Uh, so, you know, I feel in that way I was, I benefited from having a family that saw the importance of education, even if they couldn't necessarily walk the path for me or couldn't prescribe what my path should be. Um, they certainly were supportive of, not only supportive of, but requiring that I uh, leaned into education from a very early age. Nice, yeah. I'm first generation college student, so I always, mm-hmm. I'm always curious to know, like you know, as far as figuring it out. I know for me, I had to do a lot of that, trying to find a way because it's like uh, no one was really telling me what to do or how to do it. Totally. So I'm curious to know, like, how were you able to navigate into your first? I don't know if you did internships before you landed your first full time role in started or decided to start in healthcare with Eli Lilly. Well, it's interesting because like, so in high school, um, there was kind of two types of jobs. You could have like any job a typical 15, 16 year old would have. And I did that. I bagged groceries at the grocery store and I flipped burgers at McDonald's. So I did that until I could get an internship at one of the more professional opportunities around town, which in our case was a factory. So because I had thought I wanted to be an engineer and I was headed down that track, uh, I was able to get some engineering internships at General Motors before I left high school. So that put me in a really good position as a freshman after my freshman year to get another internship with General Motors or another sort of company uh, because I already had some experience in that internship environment uh, beforehand. So then my next internship was with General Motors after my freshman year. And then after that, it was a co-op with Toyota um, after my sophomore year, during my sophomore year and the end of it. And so there was not a summer in college where I did not have an internship. In fact, my friends didn't have internships. I thought something was wrong with them. I'm like, (laughs) that's what you do. You don't work at McDonald's after high school, after college, you go to an internship. I recognize that was a pretty privileged kind of engineering approach because most engineers could access professional internships whereas other fields of study didn't always have that. And if they did, they weren't always paid. So I've ran that train um, 
the I rode that train as far as I could until it was time to graduate. And then I was able to, uh, frankly, benefit from uh, a lot of opportunities for internships or for full-time jobs upon graduation. But I was a part of National Society of Black Engineers as well. So Nesby really provided a wonderful opportunity for students with decent grades and the gift of gab, a little bit of leadership skills to get in front of corporations and um, have the opportunity to work for them um, and be recruited to them post-graduation. So I took full advantage of that opportunity. Nice. Yes. I, I too share that connection with Nesby and um, yeah. yeah, definitely grateful to them. I, I did, um, did like a one week immersion or was it a three day immersion with, General Motors, my freshman year. So okay. that was really cool. It was in Bowling Green, though. It was a Corvette, Corvette experience. Oh, well, you had a, you had a good spot. Yeah, um, it was cool. <laughs> it was cool. I can remember going down. We had the, the Milford Proving Ground was in near Detroit. And all the interns, they had this global intern um, retreat or summit uh, for a week. And they gave us a chance to go to the Proving Grounds. And you could drive all the hot cars that were on the streets those days, the next year models. So driving a vet or Camaro or whatever around the proving ground track was like pretty remarkable. So I know all about that, that Corvette life, but only, only for a little while. Yeah, no, that's cool. I'm shocked that they didn't snag you for full time after. So can you, can you walk us through kind of like your career start and what was the strategy behind starting with Eli Lilly? Because, you know, as we'll get into it, you also went back to Eli Lilly. I, I, it looked like after B-School. business. Yeah. School. So curious well, as to. Well, it's funny. The older you get, the, the further away your, um, your, uh, your resume, the early days of your resume gets behind you. So I actually, <laughs> my first job out of college was actually at Dell Computers in Austin, Texas. Okay. And... I left that job after about uh, two years um, and then moved to Eli Lilly and Company. And that's when my career really took a different turn. Uh, so I started as a, um, a new product introduction engineer at Dell, where we were working on the new product launches across the globe for, for their pre-built or their specially built computers. If you remember Dell was like, pick your parts. You didn't like go get one off the shelf. You had to pick the parts of the Dell you wanted. So we would make sure that those parts were compatible and do that across the globe. Uh, I moved to Eli Lilly and Company um, with the idea of the Eli Lilly people saw me when I was national chair of Nesby. So they had a chance to see me in a leadership capacity. And so when they recruited me to come to Lilly, they had sites on me to help be a leader in the organization. And so I started as a process engineer for a while. And then after a year, I was promoted to run uh, engineering for our packaging facility. So we were packaging probably a billion drug units a year uh, out of that factory uh, in capsules and bottles and all the things you would get in a pharmacy. Uh, and that role is what led me off to business school. So after that role is when I headed off to Harvard Business School. Okay. And was that move strategy? Because, and I've, I've mentioned this in other episodes about B school and how it seems like okay you got to do B school to take off on the executive level so was that the idea behind it yeah yeah I don't think that business school is a requirement to take off as an executive or to be successful in life but for many people it is a major launching pad and so I'm fully in support of folks uh really deeply considering a graduate degree if they have any interest in business at all 
I strongly encourage uh, consideration for a top business school. Um, so it was absolutely strategic. When I left Dell, one of my objectives, when I left college, actually, I wanted to go to business school. Um, and I want to go to one of the top schools. Uh, I have a funny story about how I came to the decision of Harvard, but nevertheless, um, that was on my mind. And I wanted to find a way to get there as cheaply as possible. And so Lily had a program where if you performed well and could get sponsored, they would send you off to business school and then they would pay for it. Um, but you just had to give them X number of years of service upon graduation. So when Lily showed interest and I liked their program, that was a match made in heaven. So I jumped in there, did my job, showed up well and impressed enough people that I could get sponsored. So it was all strategy from the start. So I knew within a year or two of my time at Lily, especially once I got promoted to running a you know, part of a factory, I was like, okay, time is now, I have leadership on my resume at a corporate level, I had leadership on my resume already from, uh, from helping to be, for being the, um, the national chairperson of Nesby. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I built a good case for business school and my grades were already locked. I had studied engineering at a good engineering school, one of the best, uh, go blue. And so I felt like I had a decent case to get in. Uh, and then I put in all the work to, to write the essays, get the right test scores and apply. And, uh, you know, with the grace of God, it all worked out. Nice. Okay. So part of me does want to hear that funny story of how you decided um, on Harvard. So I don't know if you can share, but. Yeah. It was real simple, actually. So there was this guy that it was a professor at Michigan. I was taking this class called Entrepreneurship for Engineers. And the professor of the class was a former Michigan, he was a Michigan alum, graduated years and years before us. He was rich. And we were like enthralled by this dude who was a teacher who was rich because most of the teachers, you know, presented as just professors, but not wealthy people. But this dude was clearly wealthy. So we're like, how'd you get your money? He said, well, I have a t-shirt factory, a t-shirt company. And I was like, well, well, tell me about this t-shirt company. He's like, well, almost all the t-shirts you buy on this campus are made for my, for, at my company. So I was like, well, okay, that's a lot of t-shirts. You can look at the stadium and see, you know, this man's wealth just on people's backs every day. So I was like, well, how'd you figure out how to get rich off a t-shirt? She says, well, I have my engineering degree from Michigan, yeah, industrial engineering, as it turns out. <laughs> and I went off to uh, Harvard Business School. And I was like, well, hey, if you can get rich off of t-shirts, I need to go where you went to do that. Wherever you figured that out, I need to go there. And so it became pretty clear from, that point four for me that uh, Andy Crawford has set a path for me to go off to Harvard Business School uh, if I could just figure out how to get there. So it really helped, honestly, that and Nesby helped to focus me academically where I was struggling a little bit because engineering is tough. It helped to focus me a bit on a particular goal that had strict requirements. If I wanted to get an HBS, I had to do certain things, have certain scores, et cetera, to get there. And so it gave me a path, it gave me kind of a, um, something to shoot for specifically. And so that was kind of the way HBS came to the story for me. I love that. I love that. That is a funny story. Um, I do want to get, I want to ask a little more about how you were able to navigate the process to be, you know, um, selected from Eli Lilly's, you know, uh, from the folks at Eli Lilly to, yeah, to be sponsored because, you know, there are companies that offer that, but those are highly competitive 
programs and, you know, you're competing against other people who are just as qualified to get into the, to work for the company. And, you know, you have to do, you have to manage your performance really. So um, knowing that you were young, you know, relatively young and um, manage your performance, manage those relationships and we're able to advocate for yourself. Um, I'd love to hear some of the best practices that you learned from that process and how you accomplished that goal, you know? Yeah, I, I think so very early on, it was important to figure out who were the decision makers at the company, both for the program, but also uh, on the narrative about me, who was going to be evaluating me, who was going to have some say so over my career, who were going to be my sponsors, uh, or mentors. And I was fortunate enough to be able to find those relatively quickly. They saw me in a leadership capacity before through their work with Nesby when I was chairperson, et cetera. So I had a sense of who those people were. And then I cultivated those relationships. And I think many times in organizations, people, they just do their job with their heads down, which you gotta do your job, like point blank. None of us are getting ahead if we don't do our jobs well, exceptionally well. But if you do your job exceptionally well, and you've identified the people in the organization who can make sure your name shows up at the right conversation or on the right board, um, then you are in a position to not only um, meet those goals, but exceed them in many ways. And so finding out who those people were and making sure they were apprised of my performance was another part of the story. Because at the end of the day, I wasn't going to be in the room where I was talked about. So I need to make sure. And I wasn't. So as a result, I'm not sure what's being said when I'm not in that room. So I spent a lot of time um, or at least a decent amount of time making sure those sponsors and mentors knew what I was doing saw my results, heard about my work from me and others, so that when it was time to have a conversation, nobody could torpedo or hate, <laughs> uh, <laughs> tank my plan, right? Tank my career, et cetera. And so I think that's a part of the story when you think about networking in corporate America and how to navigate the space. It can't just be do your job only. It also has to be figure out the political system and begin to work it as well. It becomes part of the job if you want to advance. So that was you keeping note of your wins. Was that you setting up one-on-ones to kind of communicate how you had been, you know, doing well? Absolutely. There was, it was, <laughs> it was uh, not a rare occasion for me to be the only person in my age, 25, 24, going to the executive floor at Eli Lilly and having a meeting with one of the executives. Like none of my peers were doing that, but I was, because first you just ask the question, the most I can do is tell you no. And if they tell you yes, which more are inclined to say yes to a meeting with a junior member than, than you would expect, then you need to just show up, make sure you're smart, make sure you're on time, make sure you have something that's of value for them to know about you and your environment. And quit very quickly, they can become an ally and an asset to your career. So I made that a part of what I was doing. Gotcha. Yeah. So fast forward, you go to business school, Mm-hmm. You you dabble in consulting, yep. IBM, and then you graduate business school and you come back to Eli Lilly and enjoy more years at the company and then you pivot. So I want to know about kind of that time and what was your idea and I guess vision for your career at that time? Yeah. So, you know, I always thought of myself um, or wanted to think of myself at least in a leadership capacity. Uh, I was class president in high school, three out of four years, and done my thing at Nesby and, and when I was on campus in Michigan. So I always wanted to be in a position where I could 
uh, help make decisions that would affect people's lives in a very positive way. Like one of the things about being from Flint is you see how corporate leadership can impact the lives of human beings. When you close a factory and thousands of people now have no job or and then the many thousands more whose jobs depend on that factory being open, be it restaurants, bookstores, hospitals, you name it. You see the choices that a single leader, business leader can make that can impact normal people. And so for me, it was either business or government, the two entities that were making the biggest impact on people's lives. So I want to be a leader of one of those two spaces or both. And so when I got back to Lily, I was like, well, where are the parts of the business that are really driving results for the company? And it appeared to me that sales and marketing, at least in pharmaceuticals, was where people were really starting to launch pad into senior leadership. So I moved, um, I looked at to move into marketing or sales and move into sales. And the move into sales gave me a chance to lead teams across states. I had uh, teams that covered West Virginia, Ohio, parts of Indiana, parts of Kentucky, uh, and a broad group of people that knew more than I did, that were more skilled than I was, um, and figure out how to lead that group to a better result. And I think that gave me, that opened the door, frankly, for me to enter a career more firmly into business, because I was pretty sure I didn't want to be in the factory the rest of my life. So the, the choice to move to sales or marketing would have allowed me an entree or an exit out of manufacturing and into something a bit more broader in business. Uh, and that's exactly what happened uh, because all the roles I had subsequent to the transition to sales at Lilly were in sales or in marketing or in market making. And it's all led to the, the roles that I have today. Nice. Okay. So it was, in, it was intentional. It was not at all um, accidental. Uh, I can't I can't say that at that point in time, I knew some of these roles would lead me to here. But what I knew was that if I wanted to experience a different slice of business life, I couldn't continue to do the things that I'd always done. So I took a big risk and stepped into a different environment. Yeah. OK. So as you're making these pivots and even, I guess, before the pivots, just in, in your style of working, what are some yeah. of the things that you became known for? Like what was kind of your your professional stilo, if you will, you know, they're like, oh yeah, Damien did that. Like that's a Damien touch on that project, you know? Yeah. So I think I, especially when I was in a manufacturing setting, I always appeared and I heard this many, many times over that I was, I was more, um, I felt more like a marketer to them. I felt my energy was a, a very, I'm, a fairly outgoing person. So people experienced that I was an extra, extrovert and there might be some benefit in that. And so I think my ability to connect with people, to build relationships, to engage with people was something that uh, has been true. And it served me well in manufacturing because you can build trust and alignment much easier if you're a likable, agreeable person. Uh, if you build relationships and understand what the, the individuals that work for you might be going through, they're more likely to work with you and for you if you take an interest in them. So I've always been known as someone that could build relationships, that took interest in others, and had the greater objective um, top of mind. And that that lived in the manufacturing setting where I had 50, 60 people working for me. And it also was true in sales and all the other subsequent jobs that I've had since. I think that would be one of the core elements of how I'm known. Yeah, um, I definitely do want to start talking more about your more recent roles. I want to get into the leadership piece because 
you did make a, it seems like you've been on this trail of smaller companies, but large uh, director, you know, chief officer roles. So that's, it looks like a trend um, in the recent years for you. So curious to know about that path. Sure. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, clearly I want to be a business leader. That, that's one thing that I mentioned earlier uh, is that I felt like it was a position where I could help affect people and make a difference in business. And so um, one thing I did was I decided I need to leave um, a large company so I could really get my hands in all the parts and pieces. So I joined a smaller company. Uh, so I went there, went to a smaller family run business. I ran international business development for a company that had a really good track record in the U.S., but didn't have as much of a track record or at least could advance its track record internationally. So I literally took a laptop and a credit card and I traveled the world for the last next four years building an international network for, for that company. And because it was small, small organization, you have to kind of do all the parts and pieces um, without having a big machine behind you to do all the things for you. So I learned a lot. A really, it was a really good entrepreneurial market-making opportunity. Uh, where you also have to really rely on your cultural acumen to learn how to operate and do business in foreign countries and foreign currencies, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that for a while um, and then moved to a slightly larger company called uh, ShotSpotter, which uh, we were able to successfully take public um, a couple of years after I, uh, after I joined. I was on the management team and had part of that business where I was looking to try to grow um, grow a, a, an existing part of the business that didn't have a direction yet and figure out if there was an opportunity to actually turn that idea into a real live thing. And so um, that was a tech company uh, and that was a, it was smaller, maybe a hundred people, but clearly smaller than what we had at Eli Lillian Company, which was 30,000 or something like that uh, when I left. Um, but in both cases, those first two entry points out of Lillian into other companies where, where you're operating in a smaller company environment, you have a lot more span of control. You have to figure out how to help the business move to meet the market. And you can't rely on always a tried and true path that's been blazed before you. Many times you're blazing the trail and affecting people's lives along the way. Uh, and so for me, that was really, really attractive and exciting. So, you know, in essence, by moving to a smaller company, I was able to have more influence on the business. Right. And that was really important to me. Yeah. And I would go into asking you about how were you able to show to, uh, I guess, make the story that you can do a role like, you know, like you said, building out their international business and you're coming from just you're coming from sales, you know, in healthcare. But then I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you have that MBA piece. <laughs> right. Not that. That's, that does help. Yeah. Well, the MBA piece in many ways gives you a framework for how business gets done and it teaches you some of the skills you might need to actually accomplish work in that setting. But I also learned a lot in sales when I was uh, back at Lilly. Um, and, you know, those two things combined with the, ingen the ingenuity or initiative to go out and make something happen, I think was enough to convince um, the owner of that business that it was worth taking a shot on me. Uh, and it worked out well. It really, I mean, I think it did. I don't think he would disagree with that. Yeah. And now you're at an ad, an advertising company, advertising, marketing. 
uh, agency. Is this the most fun that you've had so far in your career? And how's the shift to this industry been? Totally, totally the most fun. Um, this is my third chief growth officer role, and it's by far the most fun. It's an industry that fundamentally is shaping the messages and images that people see. And I have two small children, a seven-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son, black, brown kids, right? So I need my kids and other kids like me to be able to experience life through the way it should be, um, which is representation and equity and inclusion. And so being in the industry, specifically a company like 72 and Sunny that values those things um, and does work that demonstrates that we value those things, not just lip service, it, uh, it feels like a perfect fit for me at this point in my life. Um, the people are great. The industry is creative and exciting. And the work we do are things that affect lives and, and people see them and experience them. So I absolutely love it. It's great. Nice. Really okay. Is. Now in the, the name of the role, Chief Growth Officer, do you feel <laughs> like, how how is that? How autonomous is it? And is, is it everything that, you know, most people think of um, and even maybe you thought of before you got into this role, maybe, you know, when you were just looking at corporate America, like, oh, being a chief officer of something, is it really like, you know, all that you think it is as far yeah. as responsibility. There, there's no ivory tower. There's, <laughs> there's no team of uh, assistants waiting on me hand and foot, bringing me my coffee. None of that sort of stuff. Right. So the things that used to maybe be true about these super senior roles, I think with uh, modern society has gone by the wayside and probably should. Like, I don't need anybody to bring me my coffee. I can do it myself. Um um, so in that regard, it's different than I think some might think. Um, in our environment, it's not an isolated role either. It's not a siloed role. We, my job is dependent upon the team of people that I work with, both in my peer group as global leaders at the company and at all levels in the organization. We don't do what we do without that full team working together to get it done. So and that suits me very well. I'm much more of a football, basketball player than a single tennis player. I prefer a team to, to uh, drive towards a goal and to get things done. And so I experience that a lot in this job. Now, it does have responsibility. Like there is a pressure to perform. And the success of the business is in many ways dependent upon the decisions that I have to make and my peers have to make. And so we work hard to make sure we are making the right decisions. That includes almost as much as anything, maybe more than anything that we're doing was right by the people that we work with. So our teammates at the company, top of mind, our client partners, top of mind. It's not about personal gain. It's about how do we get collectively to a better place, both for the individual and for the organizations we serve and, and work with. So that part of the job is that's what for me works so well in this setting is that I get a chance to be in a team and I get a chance to help others get to their goals. Uh, some of those others are client partners. Some of those are my peers and colleagues here at 72 and Sunny. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So as far as looking back on your roles and your journey, your, you know, the path that you've been able to take to this point, what are some of the things that you've learned or maybe some of the best pieces of advice you wish you would have taken and maybe the best, piece of advice that you did take? Ooh, 
That's a great question. You're asking me to think back over uh, <laughs> years. Um, I think some of the best pieces of advice I've given um, deal with like the individuals you work with, right? People um, are not going to perform in a job if they don't feel supported and cared for. Uh, at the end of the day, the old adage goes, people don't care how much they know care how much you know and they know how much you care. I think that part is true. And so if you can, and what I've found to be true is I enter a role, I want to understand the people, the process, the place, the product. I want to understand those things. Show up as a learner, show up inquisitive and curious, not showing up as you have all the answers and everything that has been done before you was wrong. That doesn't win very many friends. So for me, it's those sorts of things orienting towards learning first, and then uh, trying to direct traffic or trying to chief something people like to chief. Like, well, before you can do all that, you should probably spend time really understanding the people, the process, the place and, and the product. And if you get those down, then you can help to guide and direct the organization in a better way. So for me, that's always been a guide, a guide post. Start there. Okay. So that's some of the best advice you'd say. Yeah. Okay. Anything you wish you would have listened to that people were telling you during your career? Um, I think there were times in my career I was impatient. I could see the thing I wanted over there. Someone already had it. Or I want to be like someone. I wanted a role, a title, a, um, a house, a car, you name it. Uh, and I was impatient at times to get there when if I just paused a little bit, I would have given myself less stress. And I probably would have put the organization in a, in a position to not have to make really tough decisions too fast. So I think that is something that we all, especially in the American context, like I don't, I don't see this as much maybe in other countries, but certainly here in the States, we're hard chargers, we're hard workers. We want to see the fruits of our labor. We want it now. We want to see success happen now. Um, I think our current economy has encouraged that, you know, with all the technology and your ability to get things, you know, with the snap of your finger on your phone or whatever the case might be, the idea of being patient and waiting for something, people aren't really interested in that so much. Uh, and I think that's a lost art, right? There's value in, in patience. Yeah, I think that's a good one. That's definitely super relevant to my generation, um, you know. We we start we start working and immediately are like, all right, where's C-suite? Because that's yes. what you brought me here for, you know? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and you might be right. We might have brought you here because we see that you have C-suite potential. Mm -hmm. But just because you have the potential to fly a plane doesn't mean you should go from economy to the pilot seat. Like now, you might want to chill and let somebody else fly the plane until you can figure it out. And so I think, I think there's some of that. Now, I would impress upon you know, um, the younger generation, like just because I'm suggesting be a bit more patient does not mean you have to be passive and quiet. You should be pushing for ways to learn and to grow. You should be pushing for seats at the table to understand and to provide your input. Your input is just as valuable as anyone else's, but it does not necessarily mean that, um, that you have to be driving directly yourself right now. You can always be learning while contributing. Um, and I think that's something that I, you know, I've looked back on and said, yeah, I probably could have chilled out a little bit more and uh, learned something from that experience uh, in the midst of it as opposed to after it.
So I do want to just close with a question on legacy and what you think of as, you know, your legacy will be. I, I know that you are involved in nonprofits. You know, you sit on the boards of some pretty uh, conscious groups. And so it's evident that, you know, those things mean a lot to you. And so do you see yourself doing more nonprofit work and kind of, you know, what's what's your vision for your legacy as a professional? Yeah, I mean, more nonprofit work, more for-profit work uh, on boards. I think boards have the ability to really help to drive the direction of companies uh, and many people's lives. So absolutely that. Um, there's more left to come. I don't think I'm at the end of the road. Uh, the road is beautiful and ahead of me still. But I would say that from a legacy perspective, like I hope whenever I choose to take a step back, uh, which is not anytime soon, um, that there's people who I've worked with and that I've worked for who feel like it was a pleasure to have me, have had me in their space. Like I want to look back and be able to say, or have people say, Damien helped me along the way. I'm a better employee, better leader, better manager because I interacted with him. He set a good example for what uh, a leader and a business driver should look like. And so if I look back on my career and all I have is a lot of money in the bank and a nice watch or whatever the case might be, but I don't have anybody who's who can look at me and say, thank you, <laughs> then, then I've missed the boat. Uh, it's not about just the accumulation of things. For me, relationships are what uh, are really important. So I hope that every place I've left, I've left better. And I hope every person I've left at least has, a, has had a positive thought or experience in, in the time we've interacted. Um, 100% certainty on that's not possible, but I want to hope. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And, and very, very last, but any, any model or a life saying, or just, you know, thing that you kind of live by or observe. Oh, you're asking for some heavy stuff. Um, a model. Um, I think be kind of people, be kind of people that never gets old. It never goes wrong. Even when you have to do something tough, there's going to be times as a business leader, you're going to have to let someone go. There's going to be times when someone needs to be let go. There's going to be times when the business requires it, even though the person you know, is, is great. I think even in those very, very tough moments, you have to be kind and cognizant, respectful of the human being because they have a life, they have a family, they have emotions. Um, I think really focusing on those things while figuring out what's important to drive the business forward, those are the pieces that I've tried to always balance. And even in times when I had to do something awful, like let someone go, I would like to believe that I did it in a way that was respectful of them as a person and, and their professional integrity. So that's what I try to strive for. Love it. Well, there you have it. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is great. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I appreciate the time. And I'm so glad that you came and spoke on the podcast. Um, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is getting great jewels from this because I definitely did. And it was awesome to hear your story and just some of the reasons behind the steps in your career. You know, I'm definitely still building mine. So this is I always learn from, you know, these interviews and these talks. So I appreciate it. Well, totally. And as always, if I can ever help you uh, or any of your listeners, let me know. I'm always here to assist where I can. OK, you heard him. Go hit that LinkedIn inbox. <laughs> Reach out. Your boy will respond. 
Thanks, Damien. Cool. Thank you so much.